This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. duty to inform you that Amalia Nobbs has passed away. Uh, that name may not exactly ring a bell to you, but uh, um, um, Amalia Nobbs is a former Slovenian factory worker who became a United States citizen with help from one of her daughters, Melania Trump. Yes, that's right. The mother of the former and who knows, potentially future first lady, Melania Trump, has passed away. Her death was announced last night by Melania Trump on uh, on Twitter. I know it's called X. I still call it Twitter. Uh, during a New Year's Eve party at uh, Mar-a-Lago in Palm Beach, her son-in-law, former President Trump, said that uh, Ms. Nov- Mrs. Nobbs was very ill and that Melania was with her mother in a hospital in uh, Miami. I, uh, you know, I don't know Melania Trump. I've met her maybe once or twice, and the very limited interaction that we had in those occasions was uh, was very v- brief, but um, very positive. She struck me as very nice, very kind, actually incredibly intelligent. But the thing that I came away with and this is long before she was first lady, the thing that I came away with was the thing that was most important to her wasn't being a model, wasn't being beautiful, wasn't being rich, wasn't being famous. It was her family. Uh, she seemed to have just uh, that be her primary concern, whether it was her son or her parents, and uh, that was the thing that seemed most of interest to her. So Novs and her husband, Victor, who, by the way, have you ever seen a picture of Victor Novs? I don't want to get sidetracked here. Victor Novs, Google a photo of him. He does not look a little bit like Donald Trump. He looks exactly like Donald Trump. Exactly. Dresses like Donald Trump, looks like Donald Trump, but I guess that shouldn't be that much of a surprise because I guess they say that um, women ultimately always marry their fathers. But anyway, uh, Nobbs and her husband, Victor, became naturalized U.S. citizens in August of 2018 under a process in which adult citizens can help their relatives obtain green cards and gain permanent resident status. Melania had been their sponsor and had helped make that process possible. But um, Amelia was born in 1945 in Austria and grew up there and in Slovenia, which at the time was still a republic of Yugoslavia before its independence. Her father, Anton Olknik, was a cobbler and later a red onion farmer. Her mother was a homemaker and a, uh, a seamstress. But uh, Amelia harvested onions on her family's farm before going to work at a state-owned children's clothing store from 1964 to 1997. So thoughts and prayers, condolences to the Trumps and the Nobs family. Now, do you have an iPhone? 
Tony, you have an iPhone? No, I have an Android. Android. Uh, Matt Blaze, what about you? What are you? What are you? What's your phone model of choice? I too have an Android. Android. Okay, so I have a Google Pixel, which is you. It's like an Android. It uses Android operating software. I'll tell you what I have been tired of for the last decade: people that have iPhones. Okay, I should have known Tony and Matt Blaze don't have iPhones. You know why? Because they don't tell me every day to get an iPhone. You meet an iPhone user, and they will come up to you. It doesn't matter what you're talking about. You could have a, a conversation about the weather or Australia or space, and they will find a way to bring up, what? You don't have an iPhone? It's not good enough that they have to explain to you why they're having such a good experience with the iPhone, they have to take it upon themselves to evangelize iPhoneism and convert you. I, I think they must get some sort of a commission every time they convert you. It bothers them that you don't have an iPhone. And so How I, dare you? Exactly. If I have... With with withstood this onslaught for years. Now I'm at the point where I just don't get an iPhone out of spite. I enjoy ticking everybody off. That that you know uh, the the, uh, the things that you can do with iPhones. The iPhones people will say, "Oh, can I FaceTime you?" I say, "What's FaceTime? What? You don't have an iPhone? No, I don't have an iPhone. I don't want an iPhone. I'm happy with my Google Pixel." Um. Well. <laughs> I may not be an iPhone person, but what we have seen in the last week is the greatest commercial for the iPhone in history. Have you heard about this? You know, we were talking about this uh, Alaska Airlines situation with uh, Dr. Sky last hour. And again, I'm going to look into this a lot more because I think a lot of what we're seeing with Boeing and Alaska Airlines is attempts by airlines to cut corners. I think this is a, a textbook example of corporate greed. I think uh, this is the revolving door coming home to roost. We'll put that aside for future shows. An iPhone was on this Alaska Airlines plane, okay? The iPhone you know, when this door flew off or this panel flew off and they're flying essentially with an empty hole, an open gaping hole in the airplane at 16,000 feet to the, you know, above the ground. One of the things that gets sucked out of this Alaska Airlines plane when this door panel blew out was an iPhone. Well, (laughs) four days later, it was found On the side of the road, the iPhone that fell out of a plane at 16,000 feet hit the ground, still intact, still intact, okay, still intact and working even after plummeting 16,000 feet to the ground, the iPhone was still working, I mean, what can destroy this thing? Even Superman had a kryptonite. Nothing can destroy the iPhone. 
you, those of you that are wondering how the AI Judgment Day transition to computers taking over the world will take place, you need worry no longer because the iPhone is going to foment a takeover of the machines of human civilization because nothing could stop it. The iPhone is indestructible. It still works. After plummeting 16,000 feet to the ground, my goodness. Woo. So I am done for a while anyway, mocking the iPhone people because now I can see what they're bragging about. I can absolutely see what they're bragging about. You want to comment on anything we've covered thus far? You're welcome to uh, give me a buzz at 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. You know, I mentioned my brother, Dr. Nicholas Carmine Morano, who, unlike Dr. Sky, where his doctorate is largely honorary, it's largely a radio doctorate, my brother's uh, PhD is actually, you know, from an academic institution of higher learning. He's uh, in- listening in Australia this week with my uh, sister-in-law, Kat. Hopefully they're having a great time. But I'm sure, at least I think, I think Nicholas still has some student loan debt. My wife certainly does. And until recently, I still had graduate school debt. Even though I didn't finish graduate school, I took out loans to go, and then I I didn't finish. But I have known so many people, so many families, who have had their lives upended by student loan debt. So what do you do about it? Well, I'm going to get into this in about 10 minutes with Alan College. He has written a book on this. He's founded an organization called Student Loan Justice. And I want to ask him, how did we get into such a backward situation where college, something that's supposed to help people, becomes in some cases a financially crippling institution for the rest of your life? So we're going to get into finding out if there's a better way. Alan Collins uh, from studentloanjustice.org. He's going to join us in about 10 minutes, and uh, I have a lot of questions for him. But getting back to this phone issue, I read this other article in the New York Times Magazine over the weekend. It's really well done. It's written by Kashmir Hill, a technology reporter, and the headline of the article was, I was addicted to my smartphone, so I switched to a flip phone for a month. And she writes about this as an incredibly positive experience. Was it inconvenient? Yes. Did T9 texting drive me crazy? Definitely. Was it worth doing? Absolutely. And I got to tell you, I was very fascinated by this. And I read the the whole thing. In fact, I'm going to link to it on my Facebook page if you want to check it out, facebook.com slash MoranoFan. If you don't have a um, New York Times subscription, you can uh, just go to archive.ph and copy and paste the article in there. You can read the whole thing. But she said her biggest regret of 2023 was her relationship with her smartphone or her tech appendage. And her Apple screen time, because I guess on Apple, of course, as Andrew Cuomo will tell you, you can do anything on Apple. It reports regularly. It reports how much you use it. And she said that her Apple screen time regularly clocked in at more than five hours a day. That's only an hour more than the average American. But she found it staggering to think that she spent the equivalent of January, February and half of March looking at that tiny screen. So what she decided to do was make a radical change. She ditched 
her, and she might be an interesting guest. I, I'm thinking about inviting her on the program. She ditched her $1,300 iPhone 15 for a $108 Orbic Journey, a flip phone. It makes phone calls and text messages. That's it. It didn't even have, it doesn't have any apps on it. You can't go to the internet. And it may seem strange to go retro in the age of chat GPT, AI-powered stylists, Neuralink brain implants, the, the Google goggles, all those goggles that you wear that let you see augmented reality. But what she says is that with advanced technology poised to embed itself more deeply in our lives, it seemed a perfect time to correct course with the existing technology that already felt out of her control. So making the switch for her, and I think this would be the case for anybody, was neither easy nor fast. The decision to upgrade to the journey was apparently so preposterous that her phone carrier wouldn't allow her to do it over the phone. She had to go into the store. Her seven-year-old stared in disbelief at this technological antique on display besides a collection of sleeker devices with touchscreens. That's the phone you want, her daughter asked. She's a seven-year-old. Are you joking, she asked, rubbing her fingers over the plastic keys on the flip phone. So, uh, in any event, she says this was a great experience, going to the flip phone. And she said that um, texting anything longer than two sentences involved an excruciating amount of button pushing. So she started to call people instead. And that was a problem because most people don't want their phone to function as a phone. And I'll tell you that in my own case, that's the case. I, I, don't, I cringe when the phone rings. And on her first afternoon, she needed to ask a parent friend for a complicated logistical favor. So she called her and explained the situation to her voicemail. She didn't hear back and realized why. She had texted her, but Apple had routed her messages to iMessages rather than the phone. So she had listened to the voicemail. Others she left were never acknowledged, and it was nearly as reliable a a method of communication as putting a message in a bottle and throwing it out to sea. That's what she said. But she says this was great. She said this, um, you know, this. she's urging everybody to do flip phone February. You know how everybody does dry January? Uh, she's urging people to do flip phone February. She says that uh, it helps you concentrate a little bit more. She said after about two weeks, she noticed she'd lost her thumb twitch, a physical urge to check your phone in the morning at red lights, waiting for an elevator or at any other moment than when your mind has a brief opportunity to wander. And that's one of the other reasons on the weekend, largely on Saturday, I try to not even look at my phone. And it drives a lot of my friends crazy. They'll invite me to things, say you want to do things, try to make plans for later in the day. And I don't look at my phone. I just put it down in the corner. I mean, look, if there's a reason that I have to use it, I will use it. But for the most part, I try to keep the weekends free of my mobile phone. But I do constantly kind of wonder, gee, I wonder who's trying to reach me. wonder who's trying to text. But there were no enticements to do that at all. She said she slept better. As she wasn't reaching for her phone first thing in the day. And she cites certain studies which indicate that this helps you psychologically. So, um, you know what? I, I have to be honest. I'm going to try and interview uh, Kashmir, Kashmir um, 
Hill, who they describe in the Times on the bio, the mini bio under her byline as Kashmir Hill is a technology reporter who now knows which local radio station plays classical music and listens to it regularly while driving because she's back to listening to good old fashioned radio now because she's not just streaming apps and music from her phone. I think it's an interesting experiment. I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about trying it, but I'm going to interview her first and see if it's worth trying. I also don't want to spend another $100 on a, on a mobile phone when I just got this one, but for the purposes of this experiment, it might be interesting. All right, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222, two open lines. Bob Menendez has gone to the floor of the Senate. We'll tell you what he had to say a little bit later, but first let me say hello to Felix in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Hi, Felix. Hey, Frank, you want to hear something ironic? I do. Uh, my, daughter, my daughter, Caitlin, uh, her fiancé at the time, actually, he wound up being shot and killed by the Pennsylvania State Police. But anyway, they oh, had a son. That's awful. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the, the funny thing is this, though. My wife's name is Diane, so Felix and Diane, right? Well, <laughs> my grandson's other parents are also Felix and Diane. So my grandson is Anthony Felix. Anyway, we were camping. And little Anthony Felix was about three, two or three years old, and he came running from out of the pool with a great look of joy on his face, came running over to the chase lounge where my wife's iPhone was laying, picked it up, ran over to the pool, and threw it in. And what happened? And we, and we ran over, fished it out of the bottom of the pool, and turned it on. It still worked fine. Oh, my goodness. I'll tell you. This Steve Jobs knew what he was doing. Hey, Felix, I'm sorry about that uh, disturbing story of, uh, you know, of that of that death in, in your family. I hope everybody's doing okay now. But uh, that that is rough. The, Steve Jobs knew what he was doing. They make a fine product. I guess there's a reason the whole world is on it. Student loans. What do we do about it, if anything? 800-848-9222. Alan Collins joins me straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I don't know a parent of someone under the age of 30 that has not been affected by the issue of college tuition and in many, many cases, the issue of student loan debt. I don't know an adult under the age of 50 that has not had to deal with some of these questions themselves, both for their own finances and for those of relatives. And what we're seeing is the student loan problem is really something that is having a deleterious effect on the economy as a whole. When you see many sectors of the economy improving, gas prices coming back down to earth, the number of jobs going up, number of other things things going in the right direction. The one thing that keeps going ever upward is college tuition, even though parents and students don't seem to have the means 
to pay for it. Years ago, it was not unusual for someone to be able to pay their own way through college with maybe a part-time job or a side job. Maybe they'd take a small loan that they'd pay back within a few years of, uh, of going to school. These days, it is impossible unless you strike it rich as a YouTube star to pay for your own college tuition with some sort of uh, a side job. So what does this mean for the country? What does it mean for parents? What does it mean for students? There have been some very interesting solutions coming out of the political arena on this question. And as we look at the issue of paying for college, who better to turn to than someone whose last name almost is college. I am uh, very, very pleased to welcome to the program Alan Collinge. He is the founder of studentloanjustice.org. He's written many articles and editorials on the subject, and he's been uh, named one of seven financial heroes by CNN and Money Magazine in December of 2008, a time when the country was in very tumultuous economic times. Alan, thanks for joining me on the radio. Well, thank you, Frank. It's really good to be with you. So how did the price of college get so out of control? Let's start with that. Sure. You know, and it's exactly what you said. Back in the 70s, you could work, uh, you know, a a job over the summer and cover most of your tuition, if not all. Uh, Today, um, well, we all know. We can all see what's going on. What happened was this, Frank. Um, The Federal Student Loan Program was created in 1965. And originally, the loans were supposed to be free of interest, uh, and it sort of seemed to work for a few years. But then in 1972, um, this sort of hybrid private-public company called Sally May was created. Uh, This gave the company a profit incentive to make these loans. But more importantly, most importantly, in fact, nearly all consumer protections that exist for all their loans were stripped from student loans. So they took away bankruptcy rights starting in the 70s. Uh, um, They took away statutes of limitations. Uh, They took away federal uh, um, fair debt collection practice uh, laws. They took away truth in lending laws. You know, you almost can't name a standard fundamental consumer protection that exists for all other loans that is still in place for federal student loans. Hmm. So the profitability and and then they started charging interest, of course. And, you know, this company, Sally May, they found all sorts of ways to inflate, you know, a $5,000 loan into a fifteen, dollars $25,000 loan with penalties and fees. Um, it even became to the point, and this is very perverse, came to the point where the lenders like Sally May and others they can make much more on a defaulted loan than a loan that remains in good stead. So the loans were weaponized, hmm. and they became incredibly profitable, not only for these private banks, but even for the Department of Education. So all the standard lending dynamics, you know, good faith dynamics that you would imagine, like lending judiciously, not over lending, um, you know, not being concerned about the price of whatever is being purchased. All those things were out the window. The government, Congress, they were very free to let the kids borrow as much as uh, possible. They'd raised the loan limits year over year. And that started a hyperinflationary spiral. So the colleges, sorry, go ahead. So, no, so just so I'm clear, so the, the problems with loan practices themselves, that's what led, in your view, to the uptick in college tuition. 
Oh, absolutely. It's mm-hmm. it's clear. It's a clear one-to-one correlation. You know, if you look at the graph of the price of tuition over time, there was a watershed year in 1998 when bankruptcy protections became permanently unavailable for federal student loans. Well, that's when tuition really went through the roof. Um, it's there's just no doubt about it. And you know, I should you very rightly correct uh, correctly uh, pointed out that during recessions the colleges raised their prices even more. I mean, that's what we saw after 2008. Um, And even during the pandemic, the colleges made money hand over fist because they have no risk in the game and they were getting their own pandemic stimulus from the government, et cetera. They were teaching online rather than, uh, you know, kids in the classroom and that saved them a ton of money. So, the colleges just can't lose. <laughs> so uh, one of the things that I hear from more and more prospective college students and from a lot of parents who encourage their children to pursue another path, maybe a trade school, maybe even opening up a business, maybe a, a state school or a city university, is that the price of college, the price of private college just isn't worth it. In your view, based on what you get in terms of bang for your buck, do you think the price of college tuition is worth it? At, at this point, I have to say no. I mean, clearly, and I should say that probably half or more of the people in my group, um, they went to trade schools, they went to community colleges, uh, they went to, you know, they work with their hands. These these are not, uh, you know, elitist, liberal, you know, snowflakes, nothing like that. These are just normal people. Um, so we have to look at the big numbers here, Frank, and the big numbers are this, on the loans, uh, the default rate, which is a terrible thing, terrible for the for the borrower, I should say. Uh, the default rate for 2004 students was 40 percent. Wow. That's tw- that's twice what the subprime home mortgage default rate was. Uh, but people you know, graduating college nowadays are borrowing three times more than they were borrowing in 2004. So my best estimate before the pandemic was that we're going to see a default rate of around 70, 75% among all federal student loan borrowers. And here today, now we're post COVID and the loans are turned back on, um, 80%, uh, despite what you might read in the New York Times, it's complete fake news. Uh, 80, in fact, 80% of federal student loan borrowers are currently not making payments on their loans. And they can't. I mean, they just can't. The, the inflation that we saw during the repayment pause sucked every spare you know nickel out of them and it's it's just not happening right mm-hmm. <laughs> and whatever people out there might think it's just a fact that the federal student loan program is at this point a catastrophic failure i i just don't see it continuing all right so i want to get into the repayment pause pro- program in uh, in just a moment um just so folks are aware i know there was the the court battle over the original plan to cancel student debt and then the biden administration came out with sort of a a, a refurbished version of it which didn't affect as many borrowers didn't cover as much debt even my wife who still has student loans she gets letters from time to time one month saying you got to start paying your student loans again the next month saying oh no 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 you don't what exactly is the deal right now in terms of what the Biden administration is doing in terms of uh, student loan debt? Yeah, you know, I have to say, um, well, firstly, I'm a nonpartisan guy. Joe Biden never wanted to cancel student loans, certainly not by executive order. 
he made some pretty uh, highfalutin uh, campaign promises before the election. He said, oh, I'm going to eliminate your student loan debt if you went to a public college and you earn less than $125,000 a year, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the Higher Education Act gives the president full, broad, un- unambiguous authority to cancel loans by executive order. But Biden never did that. He tried it by this weird uh, Heroes Act law from uh, 2003. The Supreme Court case shut that down. And quite frankly, I think Biden and many other Democrats like Nancy Pelosi, they wanted that case to fail. Um, They did not. They do not want to cancel student loans by executive order. So what Biden has done over the uh, first three years of his administration is he has sat back and watched some loans being canceled through Uh, existing uh, long-term income-driven repayment plans that have been on the books for, you know, decades now. Uh, So Biden points to these uh, loan cancellations as, you know, promise made, promise kept. But I'm telling you, it's just it's just completely false, uh, Frank. Yeah. So right now, what is the story with people that have student loan? Who gets a break? Who gets a little bit of a pause? What is the conditions of who needs to pay right now? Well, everybody... On paper, as long as they're out of college, uh, more than six months uh, has to pay. But what's happening is that huge numbers of people are in deferments, forbearances, you know, financial mm-hmm. hardship. Uh, many people just simply aren't paying; they're in default. Uh, other people technically are in repayment, but their payments are zero dollars per month. Gotcha. So. Gotcha. Um, All right. Well, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Alan Collins. He's the founder of StudentLoanJustice.org. Alan, uh, tell folks, what is StudentLoanJustice.org? What are you guys hoping to do? What's your agenda? Our agenda is for the first 16 years of our existence, we were fighting very moderately for only the return of constitutional bankruptcy rights to the loans. Uh you can declare bankruptcy on any type of loan in this country except for student loans. That's another thing Biden promised to do that he didn't uh, that he did not fulfill his promise on. We're still fighting for bankruptcy, but Frank, now today the the lending system is so catastrophically failed by all rational metrics. The loans are going to be canceled. The loans will not be paid at this point. So we're calling, and I actually started the petition that ignited the whole public conversation. Uh, We're calling on the president to cancel student loans by executive order, uh, as the Higher Education Act gives him the authority to do. It's time to take this thing out back and shoot it. (laughs) This lending system is toast. Uh, there's There's no baby left. It's all bathwater. And so I think we need to end and replace the federal student loan program. We need to cancel every nickel of federally owned student loans. Uh, the taxpayers, by the way, have made a huge amount of profit on this thing. They've made every nickel that they put out probably even more. Uh, and so the taxpayers are not uh, not losing anything on this. But the lending system's got to be replaced. Uh, we Clearly, we still need bankruptcy rights for all student loans because there's quite a few out there that the president can't cancel. But this lending program is way more failed than even the subprime home mortgages. So uh, it's time to just clear the debt and and replace the lending system with something that actually works, something that's rational and doesn't make the colleges bloated and, you know, engorge themselves on future debt of uh, their their own students and something that's rationally priced where we're not, you know, uh, doing a loan to a student for $100,000 so they can get a worthless degree. That's 
So uh, let me follow up on a couple of things you just said there. Uh, For starters, uh, I want to reiterate what you were saying, that uh, currently bankruptcy protection, standard bankruptcy protection doesn't apply to student loan debt. So that means if I go hog wild on all my credit cards, run up crazy amount of debt, uh, take cash advances, use it to go gamble, uh, blow it all at the casino, uh, purchase all sorts of stuff, I can declare bankruptcy. But if I take out a whole bunch of student loans, uh, go to graduate school, go to postgraduate school, get a graduate degree after graduate degree, or even for undergrads, uh, that is, I can never declare bankruptcy if I'm crippled by debt from that. Is that accurate? Oh, that's exactly right. Now, mm-hmm. other people would argue, uh, you know, there are, so last year, about somewhere between 45 and 632 people actually did get discharges on their student loans in bankruptcy. But that's, you know, a couple hundred people out of 200,000 people who have student loans and declare bankruptcy every year. So for all intents and purposes, that's exactly right. There are no standard bankruptcy protections for student loans. uh, And, you know, there's no statutes of limitations either. So these loans will follow you to the grave. And I can tell you, you know, most of our members are over the age of 35, not under. And we've got people in their 60s and 70s and some of the horror stories I could tell you are outrageous. You know, we've got a woman in our group who borrowed twenty twenty five thousand dollars back in the eighties and nineties. She has repaid over a hundred thousand dollars on this twenty five thousand wow. dollar note. Wow. And she still owes a hundred and thirty thousand dollars. The last I checked. Wow, that's so, incredible. Hey, uh, I mean, when yeah. you talk about canceling student loan debt, the yep. first thing that I think of, quite frankly, and I think the first thing that a lot of people in the audience think of is, is the issue of fairness. How is it fair that I, Frank Morano, took out student loans and uh, paid them off, whereas someone else gets to take out a student loan, use it for educational purposes, and then have someone else pay it off for them? How is that fair to uh, allow certain people a free ride on these student loans and have others pay what was expected of them? Right. First of all, um, it's a complete misconception that people haven't paid. People have paid. Many people have paid many uh, hundreds and hundreds of percent more than they borrowed. And in fact, for every uh, $92 billion that the government lends out every year, it gets back around $85 billion in payments from the borrowers. And so it's not like anybody's really getting anything for free here. What we're talking about is an outrageously inflated debt where the overwhelming majority of that $1.6 trillion we hear about is interest. It's profit, uh, for all intents. Uh, and so the people have paid. And if you want to talk about fair, <laughs> that's a very slippery slope with student loans because the, the entire lending system is just the most unfair, most unconstitutional, uh, most damaging, harmful, predatory, and at this point, catastrophically failed loan scam that this country's ever seen. Mm -hmm. So let me just give you one example, Frank. Let's look at the state of Texas, right? Not too many blue-haired liberals in Texas. Well, the state of the people of the state of Texas collectively owe $141 billion in mostly federal student loan debt. So how are we going to get $141 billion in cash from the people of Texas to satisfy this debt? How are we going to, how, how, 
how's that going to work? How are we going to get 141 plus interest, 141 billion, suck it out of the state, send it largely to the Department of Education? What's that going to do to the state of Texas? You know, it's going to turn it into something like Mexico or something. Um, the, the lending system's failed. And, you know, again, if you want to talk about fair some more, how fair was it that these business owners during the pandemic, most of whom earned more than $100,000 a year, they got these PPP loans and less than half of them actually used them to pay their employees. So in other words, this was just free money for them. Uh, how is it fair that they got this free money from the government? And by the way, PPP loans were very expensive to the taxpayer because not one nickel was repaid. How is it fair to the, that those business owners got that huge bonus? And what about all the small businesses that, you know, they didn't have the back office wherewithal to put together an application right. in time? Um, all the businesses that failed during the pandemic. How is that fair? Well, you're not going to get an argument from from me, and I suspect uh, a lot of folks in our uh, in our audience on, on that front. Uh, beyond fairness, though, let, let's talk about the uh, the economics of this. You know, economists love to throw out that term, and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Alan Collins. He's the founder of StudentLoanJustice.org. Alan, uh, economists love to use the term moral hazard, and when this has been talked about before, some critics have uh, said that widespread loan forgiveness might create a type of moral hazard. So how do you address concerns that forgiving student loans might encourage irresponsible borrowing in the future? Oh, if you want to talk about moral hazard, that is a that is a two-way street. The moral hazard in this lending scam uh, resides entirely and totally on the side of the colleges, the Department of Education, the banks and servicers that work for it. And a whole viper's nest of these sort of snaky or people organizations uh, li that live in and around Washington, D.C. and Manhattan. These people are predators. They are sharks. And, uh, you know, as I said, for the first 15, 16 years of our existence, we were fighting only for the same bankruptcy rights that every other borrower has for other, every other type of loan. And, you know, I worked with Congress again and again, every year, every year. They'd say, oh, it's not a good time. No, you're right, but it's not a good time. Not a good time. And this lending system just metastasized. And so um, should people pay back loans? Yeah, that hasn't, that hasn't changed. But, you know, lending systems fail from time to time. We saw it with the subprime home mortgage crisis. Uh, we saw it with pretty much every banking system in Europe after World War II. We saw it with the SNL crisis of the 80s. Um, it just happens. And so what would be best is to see these loans canceled in a very quiet way. But at this point, I think it's too late for that. It's just too big. One of the things that um, I think it, it becomes clear in looking at the situation, and you alluded to this, is that the colleges have raised their tuition in in line with the ease in which students and their parents are able to borrow money. Is there a yes. risk that uh, some sort of massive student loan forgiveness would lead to colleges raising their prices even more? And could this be a situation where it helps the people that are hurting right now, but it exacerbates the problem in the long term? Well, by by canceling the loans, you have got to be responsible in how you do it. You cannot allow this lending system to continue. It just mm -hmm. can't. Um, so if they wanted to keep student loans, 
they could do that, I suppose. I don't, I don't think the government has any business being in the lending business, but it would have to have all the consumer protections that exist for all their loans. And in that environment, uh, the Department of Education and Congress, they are not going to be willing to throw $100 billion a year uh, out to the colleges to, you know, um, produce cheaper and cheaper degrees. So. Got it. So, so just so I'm clear, so the in a perfect world, you'd like to cancel student loan debt for people that are holding it now and then prospectively prohibit the federal government from being in the student loan business. Uh, maybe I can go get a student loan from a private lender, but the federal government, the taxpayer would have nothing to do with it. Is that pretty much it? I don't think the government has any good business being in the lending business, certainly not to make a profit. And quite frankly, I think we need to go back to a different model. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I'm still okay with the government subsidizing the colleges uh, and maybe even the um, the students should be on the hook to pay a bit more in tax every year for a certain amount of time after graduation. You know, there's there's a lot of ways that you can uh, that you can make the people who benefit from uh, from it, uh, pay for it in a fair way. Certainly not by loans, though. Certainly not by predatory loans, uh, least of all. Are there alternative models or methods for financing college that you believe yep. could be more effective and fair than the current loan system? Maybe something that's done really well in another country, for instance. Yeah, you know, most countries have figured this out. Um, Australia, for example. If you after college, uh, you're on the hook to pay a certain amount of uh, a certain percentage of your income uh, once you reach a minimum threshold uh, of earnings. Uh, I think there's a a time limit on it. So I don't know if it's 15, maybe 20 years. Uh, You pay a certain percentage. It's set in stone, can't be changed. There's no opportunities for profiteering or, uh, you know, weird little lending games that everything that we're seeing now. Um, So. You know, it's solid. Everybody knows what it is going in. There's no surprises. Uh, you know, everything's very transparent. I, I, I would like to see something like that. One of the things that I hear um, regarding credit cards, loans, regarding uh, things like rent on apartments is a lot of complaints that there just isn't adequate financial literacy among young people. Do you think that more needs to be done to educate young people in terms of how the economy works? Is there a lack of financial literacy that's contributed to this student loan crisis? And if there is... How do you think that can be addressed? You know, students and their parents are never told before they sign for those loans that there are no bankruptcy protections. Mm. There are no statutes of limitations. The very unique uh, um, booby traps that are that are set up around these loans, they're never disclosed to the parents or their students. No matter how, you know, there are CPAs that have, you know, uh, guided their child through the financial aid process. And they had no clue. Um, you know, and increasingly they're making these loans to parents in the form of parent plus loans. And no, it's, it's not a bad borrower problem. It's not a financial literacy problem. It's a problem of an unconstitutional predatory loan scam that Mm -hmm. has been foisted on the public by the federal government, by both parties, by the Republicans and the Democrats. And it's just, uh, it's not acceptable. Uh, it's not tolerable. And quite frankly, in my humble opinion, uh, nobody should be paying their money into this beast and feeding it. Alan Collins, we're going to have to end it there. Really appreciate the conversation. I hope you'll come back in the future. 
Well, thank you, Frank. Anytime. It's going to get exciting here over the next year. I can imagine. Uh, you could check out Alan Collins at studentloanjustice.org. That's studentloanjustice.org. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. If I could save time in a bottle, the first thing that I'd like to do is to save every day. Till eternity passes away Just to spend them with you If I could make days last forever If words could make wishes come true Six minutes until the top of the hour. I love this song. It's Jim Croce. If you listen to the lyrics, Time in a Bottle, is there any song that's more apropos for a man that died at only 30 years old? But he still, even though he only lived to 30, uh, produced some great music. And I want to sound like I was repeating everything I said about Elvis Presley earlier in the week, but uh, it's really extraordinary. The body of hits that not only this song, but uh, Life and Times had that great song, Bad, Bad Leroy Brown, or that album. Great, great musician. And uh, it's a shame that he uh, didn't live longer. And uh, today was his birthday. Today would have been his birthday. He was born on this day in uh, 1943. So it would have been 81. Hey, uh, we have a fresh new edition of the Racket Report podcast available for your consumption. Really interesting. Uh, My guest this week was George Martirano. George Martirano has the unique distinction of being the longest-serving, first-time, nonviolent offender in the history of the Federal Bureau of Prisons. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole in 1984 on drug charges. So he took a guilty plea, and he still got life in prison for nonviolent crime, first offense. So I asked him about this. How did you end up, I mean, what were you expecting when you pled guilty? What were you supposed to get? What did you think you were going to get? When you made the decision to plead guilty, what sort of sentence were you expecting? And then tell tell people what you got. The government writes a sentencing memorandum. That's customary. The government, probation department, parole, probation department writes writes a sentencing memorandum. In the sentencing memorandum, they had me down as the leader, ma- managerial role. Role. I'm on the top of the indictment, there was nine others on the first name. My guidelines were 48 to 52 months because mm-hmm. I was nine violent. The most they should have gave me was 52 months. I got light, no flow. And incidentally, ladies and gentlemen, I was the fourth person ever 
in America to get that sentence. There was three before me. One was Nicky Barnes, a major, major, major drug dealer. Sure. And he wound up becoming an informant. Then you had Herbie Sperling, a friend of mine, major drug guy, and a black guy out of L.A. who I knew in prison, Felix something or other. Uh, they were whales compared to me. But right there in black and white, which I used many of my pills, I never was not supposed to get more than 52 months. And I served over three decades. Can you imagine that? You take a guilty plea. The prosecutors actually recommend... 48 to 52 months, and the judge says, nope, sorry, we don't care what the prosecutors recommend. We're giving you life in prison. Can you imagine? It's a fascinating story, and it's all covered in uh, the latest edition of The Racket Report. You can just go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com and search The Racket Report, or you can go to any any podcast platform, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, whatever. Search The Racket Report. Hit the subscribe button. And every time there's a, a new episode of the podcast, it'll automatically come to your phone. And if you rate, if you give us a good rating on iTunes and give us a nice comment, nice review, it really does help spread the visibility of the podcast. So uh, it's definitely worth listening to, really. We get into a lot of detail, stuff you can't believe, but happens to be all true. Hey, speaking of podcasts, a lot of folks have been asking what the deal is with this darker side of Midnight podcast, which, if you're new to the show, is sort of like an after show that Matt Blaze and his band of Merry Men uh, produce. They were doing it every day, and now they've gone on a lengthy hiatus. Although when I left yesterday, you guys were uh, taping a new episode. What happened there, Matt? We are in the midst of doing a new episode. It is not up yet. I have to do a little surgery on it, though I don't like oh, to. Oh boy! I don't like to do much surgery on the podcast. It's pretty much I treat it as it's live, and we just record it. But there were some things going on in the studio that I have to add some music to. And uh, that's the reason. All right. It'll be up uh, shortly. Very interesting. All right. After the top of the hour, we may talk about Bob Menendez. We may talk about gain of function um, research. We may talk about President Trump and his claims of immunity. I don't know. We've got a lot of possibilities here. We're going to do something exciting in just a moment. Your calls at 800 848 9222. Until next hour, keep asking questions.